You are listening to The Exchange by Evolution, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Asia. I'm Sid, and I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. We will be talking about expanding to new markets in the tech industry, and today specifically we're touching a bit more on the cybersecurity industry. And joining us are two senior leaders who have led GDM initiatives for at both large companies and startups. And you know, we're really excited to have you here today. Our first guest is Christina, and she leads sales for ASEAN at Ping Identity, an identity and access management software company headquartered in Denver, Colorado. And next we have Alexandra Jorison, also known as Alex, and she's a strategic and enterprise account director at us for ASEAN at Recorded Future, a threat intelligence cloud company uh, based in Boston. So just a quick disclaimer before we get into the discussion, all thoughts and views spoken by any of the speakers or myself are that of the individual and not that of their companies. So thank you for joining us. It's great to have you here today. Um, let's start off with some quick introductions, right? Um, just so our listeners get to know you guys a little bit better. Christina, would you mind just giving us a quick background about yourself? Of course. So my name is Christina Tup. Um, I've lived in about 10 countries now, and Singapore has been my home for just over four of those years. I absolutely love sales, particularly B2B enterprise sales. Right now, I'm working with a great company called Ping Identity, which is really changing the way that large enterprises look at protecting the identities of their customers, their partners, and their employees. So it's a pretty fun part of the world to be in. We're protecting identities, making everybody feel good. Awesome. Alex, would you like to go next? Um, my name's Alexander Jorison. I'm originally from the Netherlands. I haven't lived in 10 countries, but I might be close. <laughs> um, also love sales. Like, perfectly, perfect match. Also love sales. I've been in tech sales for about 20 years. Worked at a few startups. Some amazingly successful, some less so, that's fine. Uh, I was at Google for 10 years and I got a bit more involved into some Google Cloud projects and that's how I got really fascinated about cybersecurity. Because if everything and everyone is connected to the cloud, how do we secure that? So I think that's fascinating. Awesome. So, you know, let's just jump right into the topic for today. Expanding into new markets is never easy. And of course, the products that you sell, the industry that you work in, and the people that you work with, uh, all contribute to you know how successful you are and the challenges that you will end up facing in this role. So, Christina, let's start with you. What are the main challenges that you have faced when you know launching new products or taking companies into the market? So the number one challenge is always finding focus. Right? Um, you typically, you're sent out there like one of the green berets. You've got a knife that you can put between your teeth, a little bit of mud smeared behind your, you know, below your eyes, and you're expected to go and work miracles. So what I generally do is I sit there and I say, what are the 25 customers that I want to sell? And how do I ruthlessly prioritize 100% of my time and my team's time is spent solving big problems that they care about? And everything else is absolutely secondary. Okay. Alex, what about you? Similar. Like if, if I have this huge playground out there, where do I go first? What do I need? 
Um, how long do I think it's going to take? And trying to kind of preempt all those questions. I mean, I've recently worked at a startup where they said, oh yeah, we really want to expand into APAC. And then once I got into a bit more details as to what I would need and where I'm going, they're like, oh, that actually sounds like a lot of work. It's <laughs> really complicated. Right? And then yeah. it's like, oh, we're kind of gonna, no, we're, we're not gonna do it. Because like, <laughs> you can get lucky and get one or two big clients in ASEAN or APAC. But luck is not a strategy. True. So it's, yeah, very much about, about creating that focus and then kind of talking about the world that we're currently in. So we're obviously right now in Singapore. Uh, I've done some, you know, road to market strategies in the US and in EMEA. And then you come here and you're like, I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I'm going to have to start all over again. Mm. So big challenge here that I see is uh, scaling. So you can, you can scale a strategy or an idea or an event that you hosted in the Netherlands, for example, my favorite country, which I'm from. Uh, you could probably do something similar in Germany. It will work, it will scale, it will still be relevant, it will be fine. You try and do that in ASEAN where you say, oh, I have this great event that I organized in the Philippines. You know, you walk into a Thai bank, they're like, we don't care. So you're gonna to have to start all over again. So scale is um, is hard. Agreed. Agreed. Very, very big. Kiasu markets. They're the markets which are very highbrow. They're the markets just want whatever's cheapest and open source. And you can't have a one size fits all strategy in the same way as you can for the United States. And I speak with my customers in the states, as are my colleagues in the states, and they'll say, "Oh, you know, it's very different selling West Coast versus East Coast." Friend, <laughs> you have no idea. Um, and you know, as you said about scales, one of the things we're all talking about earlier. If you take Thailand, for example, it has the GDP of Minnesota. And when I come into managers and I say, "Hi, I'd like a dedicated set of go-to-market with dedicated language, withholding tax, currency yep. for something with the GDP of Minnesota," they obviously say no, right? But Thailand also has a population the size of the west coast of the United States. And if you look at Indonesia, it's got a population the size of the US. So this is why you know, two-tier distributors become very important in this market, whereas they're a lot less important in, uh, you know, in the United States, for example, where everybody's got the same tax regime or in the Yeah, area. you can much more easily, you just fly to Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, languages as well, right? Yeah. So all the different languages that are spoken. And you can get away with speaking English, obviously. You can, mm. you can organize an event or you can meet with, with, with a client and conduct a meeting in English. But at a certain point, you do pretty quickly say, oh, I need to go local. So it's global, regional, as well as local in a go-to-market strategy here. Whereas in the US or in EMEA, you can get away with a global and regional. Yeah. This is kind of one big region. Right, okay. So I've spoken to some sales leaders uh, who also do a lot of kind of regional leadership. And, and they, they compare, I think the US definitely is a lot more homogenous when you look at it. Um, Europe, I guess if you were to compare all three of the big regions, Europe and us, ASEAN or Asia is slightly similar because there are you know, fragmented um, communities within these countries. But 
how has ASEAN really uh, presented unique challenges to you? Like what has been, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you've faced or the most challenging country to break into for you? Japan is hard because Japan, Japan is culturally yeah. extremely different. There is a big language barrier. Yeah. But again, Japan is huge. Yeah. So and the prize is, is there. And it makes it worthwhile, right? So you know, we've always been happy to set up a nominated reseller. And you just go with one of the big ones. So NTT, Hitachi, someone like that. The, the big issue with Japan, for me at least, is that there's not a culture of outbounding. Mm. Um, and there's not a culture of LinkedIn. So yeah. demand generation, it's fundamentally different in Japan than, than a lot of other regions. Yeah. You really have to find the right reseller who's large enough to have all those relationships, but small enough and nimble enough to want to actually present an events, move, you know, work their Rolodex. It's, it's Something that we're doing right right now with NTT. Um, I've worked with partners in Japan before, but we haven't quite gotten that right. right. It takes quite a lot of time. Yeah. Like, I mean, I did a go-to-market strategy when I joined Google for one of their newest products, and I could literally, obviously, I have a good amount of resources, but I could literally do a go-to-market strategy for five countries at the same time. Whereas here, I, I would I would struggle to do. I would need an army of people, people speaking different languages, different marketing strategies, different events. How do you even get from each event to the next? And data privacy. In between machines. the public holidays. I do think that this region is the most fun. I do. I mean, France, I was in France for about nine years. French tech changed France a lot. So the, the French tech scene used to be a bit stuffy and French tech has really opened it up and democratized it a bit. But before then I found it as an outsider, as an American, really hard to break in the French tech scene. Uh-huh. Here, if you want to get into the scene, you're in the scene. It's, I love it. It's super entrepreneurial, super open, welcoming. It's, it's such a fun place to work. Awesome. Um, so in cybersecurity, right? Uh, it's definitely one of the most complicated um, areas to work in. I think, you know, the solutions are very diverse and the people that you're typically speaking to are very protective by nature in, in, in some sense, you know. So I guess how has your experience been here and what do you love about you know selling cyber i mean i love selling cyber because i feel i'm i'm doing something good i'm trying to protect how we are now all doing business and most of our identity is online on our phone excuse me and how do we how do we protect that um, I'll give you a little example. Like my daughter is nine years old. So she really wants to have her phone and be online and all these things. And she was making a video and she really wanted to post it online. And I was like, why do you want to do that? She's like, I want to get some followers. And again, I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I'm like, Anna, and her name's Anna. I was like, Anna, how would you feel if people were following you on the street? Like that would be weird. That would not be a great place. And she's like, 
And it's like, yeah, but we use the internet in a very different way and we kind of take it for granted that the internet is always accessible and available, what you see on the internet is real, but actually it's not at all like that. And as we're all making that change, especially as I have children and I'm seeing that a lot of their life will kind of be lived online, uh, we all need to be ready to be able to handle that and deal with that. And the same goes then for enterprises. Yeah. So that's something that in, in my job I, uh, I really enjoy. But no, you're right, cyber is very complex. I have friends, so do you, because we're friends. We have friends that work in cybersecurity. I have no idea what they do. I don't know what they do. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You're a man at the end. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it is huge, and we are, I mean, we're both kind of in those like slightly smaller companies, but establishing ourselves. But there are still, you know, it's a hugely growing industry, demand is, is growing. And it's, yeah, there's a lot of companies that are, that are popping up and when you look at those logos, uh, you know, all those, those sheets with all the logos on them, you're like, wow. But, you know, that will start to thin out as the industry matures and as people identify what, what do we really need in terms of cybersecurity. I'm interested for you, Alex, right? Like, you've sold a lot. How do you go into accounts differently for cyber versus other Hmm, that's a good point. Um, I mean, I actually try and get away from talking to IT people or <laughs> ex-network administrators extraordinaire and try and take it back to that human side and say, you know, what would be really detrimental to your company where you reached tomorrow? What, what is your plan? Yeah. Um, again, I used another story the other day when I was talking to some, some companies uh, and again, I used the, the analogy of, of something my daughter did. My daughter, again, the other day got an email um, and it said it was from her grandmother, but the email address wasn't her grandmother's usual email address. And she is nine years old and she looked at the email in her inbox and said, I don't think that's granny. But then she replied to the email, which is technically wrong, but still. She replied to the email and said, what is my middle name? What is my date of birth? And send me a picture of yourself in front of your house. To verify that the person wow. that was emailing her was. And she's eight years old. And I said to all these uh, yeah, like CISOs and security directors, I was like, can you tell me that all of your employees would have responded the same? And they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's often how I try and, and like yeah you have to make everyone care it can't just be the CISO it can't just be the network administrator who's just trying to keep it all together <laughs> like it, it needs to be everyone it's a joint responsibility of the entire company mm -hmm. to take safety seriously so I guess I think we spoke about this earlier um about you know how your current role in cyber selling to these large enterprises. Um, how do you convince them that you know you are the right partner to work with on, on certain issues when everyone is trying to you know do things in house? Yeah, oh, I get this all the time. I was speaking with a friend of mine at uh, one of the banks here. Uh, worked with him in the past and everything. I said, all right, what are you guys doing? He said, 
we're bringing everything in house. I have a team of 300 developers and we're gonna build it all ourselves. Okay, that's fantastic. But what happens when you wanna take a vacation, right? Where are, you, where are you doing this and going? And what we often find is, this, it's almost like a Christmas tree, right? You go with the branches out, you go with the branches in, branches out, branches in, you outsource, insource, outsource, insource. So everybody takes it to an MSP. Then they get frustrated with the MSP, then they bring it entirely in-house. And they realize all of a sudden, they're no longer a bank, they're a custom development shop. So then they go and they take it to a vendor and so on and so forth. And, and the goal is, for me at least, is to say, you can do as much as you want, but you can do it with lower skilled personnel. So what we promote is our in-house identity and orchestration platform at Ping. And it allows people to drag and drop via low-code, no-code element. Now this isn't a plug for Ping so much, it's just the way that I like to sell is to say, you, you know, when I was selling to GSK, I said, you don't want me making vaccines. And I don't want you programming. So let's let's right. all just focus on what we're good at so that we can focus on making our respective customers happy. So it's a bit of a rambling answer, but it's really kind of around sticking to what we know yeah. and recognizing that there are this give and get. There's always happens. those changing needs and there's changing CISOs and as they come in, they need to make changes because that's what they came there to do. Yeah. And, and I mean, I was at Google for a long time. So Google for a lot of companies is very much a part and that's kind of the operative word is to try and move from being seen as just a vendor who sells a product and you know, I can sell you a sandwich tomorrow but if I help you cook then that would be a way more valuable partnership for you than me just coming in and saying here's a cheese sandwich um, but that's I mean that's also the trick because everyone's super busy so talking about the general challenges in cybersecurity it's, it's exactly that like everyone's incredibly busy People are under-resourced, oh, people yes. are overwhelmed with the number of tools that there are. And me, especially mm -hmm. as being kind of a newbie mm -hmm. in the industry, there's still so many acronyms that I'm like, oh, you need, you need an EDI, you need an XDR, you need this, you, you need, need a SOAR, you need a SOAR, you need a SOAR, you need an XSOAR. It's just, yeah. yeah. So I think that is really hard in this industry. Yeah. Okay. I think one of the big issues that a lot of uh, people we work with in cyber have trouble with is you've got all these elements around risk and so on and so forth and a lot of them are not fine-grained tools so for example I went to go and get um, I won't tell you with whom but a, a ride hailing app recently uh -huh. and there were a bunch of us in the building and we're all doing it right at the same time because we're coming out of an event and it started blocking us off because we're on the same ISP the same Wi-Fi right. and the price goes up so, so I switched over to 4G and I was able to get one <laughs> oh wow! So it's it very, it wasn't very fine-grained rules, right? And so you either get this blunt force instrument at the edge, or what a lot of people do is they say, oh, well, we'll just take that all back to our scene and our stock will manage it. Yeah. And then that means you're driving by looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah, and you're, you're letting other people worry about it. And you're pushing it down that hill and that chain. So, so you know, the difference with cyber is, Oftentimes, mid-market companies don't recognize the need for it. Yep. Oftentimes, large companies are running around with their heads on fire because they've got so much to do, so many auditors. There's a bank here whose cybersecurity auditors have auditors. That's that's how much. It's like a personal trainer having a personal trainer. <laughs> like, what, what is wrong with this? It's incredible, right? And so to like, get any airtime yeah. in that world. Is, yeah, exactly. It's so that's why it's hard to really become a vendor 
And for me, I've changed my style to answer questions, to be really, really proactive when I talk to clients to not um, say, oh, this is my tool, this is my grade, this is my first, and be like, hey, I just read your company annual report, yeah. for example. And I read that you've had two breaches in the past year. Why don't we talk about what happened and how we can help you moving forward? Rather than coming in and doing this, this pitch. Because oh, uh, as well, like all these business leaders, they can just Google companies beforehand, I would hope. <laughs> and figure out what is that offering why should yeah. I even meet yeah. with why should I even meet with these people? Yeah. We've all sat through that meeting where someone's just throwing things at the wall to see. They still do it. We do it at events, we do it at we do it all the time. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's just it's just fine. Yeah. So gee, I'm not sure if you do the same thing, but one of the big things I do is I, I look at my top taps and I say, who is it really annoying for our customers to have to manage separately? Mm-hmm. And then I say, why don't we partner up yeah. and find a restarter package that's all together? Right. So it's just kind of one platform. Mm-hmm. And then we'll typically introduce one another into accounts that exactly as you said, not as vendors, but as partners to say, yeah. hey, I've got a low risk way for you to extend this. And integration is huge. Absolutely. Right? And consolidation. So again, most users that I've talked to, and I'm like, oh, what are you looking to do this year? They don't want to buy more stuff. They want to buy less stuff. But they still want it all to work. They all want it all to work together. I mean, even for us, we all have password fatigue. You have to log into 500 different things just to, again, order a sandwich or whatever. Yeah. You're like, no, I just want to order into, you know, log into one system and have one dashboard that helps me understand nearly everything. Like, yeah. We're not going to have that. So, yeah, that's a big one. So, try and understand that. And understand where you fit in that tech stack. Yeah, that's absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you start marching in there with the, the classic vendor diagram that puts you at the center of the yeah. world and everybody else around you, <laughs> everybody's eyes just roll in the back of their heads. Mm-hmm. So it is that humility and modesty to realize that, you know, you've got a lot going on as a company. Here are two things that I think I can help you with and how I can partner with you and your existing ecosystem yeah. to reduce your risk, reduce your fatigue and help you to consolidate this journey. Amazing. As someone who is a self-proclaimed newbie in this space. It's two years. <laughs> I guess how do you keep you know keep learning and keep updating your skills to just have the best conversations with clients? That's a tough one. I mean, I, I believe in two two methods. So the first one is just the old school: read some books, do some courses. I'm actually studying for my sis right now, which isn't something salespeople normally do, but again, I think it will give me that you know extra credibility and knowledge that I do want to have. And the other one's like just ask questions. I think that's totally, that's why I'm still calling myself a newbie, although technically one could argue I'm not. <laughs> but if someone uses an acronym that I don't know, I will either Google it really quickly under the table, or I will write it down and I will ask someone later. And um, yeah, just keep asking. And there's still, I mean, three years ago, did anyone know, had anyone ever heard of like Log4j? No, because it didn't exist. Now it does, and we're all throwing it around like we actually know what it is. The first time that I actually said to someone, Can you actually explain to me what it is? And they were like, Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, Okay, so you're faking it too. 
five minutes. <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely. When people smell these yeah. birds around you, like, you know what this is. Like, really? And I don't know about you, I love talking with the younger people. The younger people. Oh, no, I mean, we're so <laughs> young and gorgeous. But no, um, so, so we're, so with uh, ChatGPT, right? Yeah. I was sitting there going, all right, so there's all this potential for spearfishing. So I went into, obviously, a Google Hole. I found someone in Wired that went to my university that had written an article about it, who lives in Singapore and works for the Singapore government. So I messaged him on LinkedIn and said, hey, can you tell me, like, what on earth is all this all about? And then we chatted. He's absolutely brilliant. He's actually going to speak at an event of ours. Now, he graduated from college not that long ago. <laughs> But he is an absolute genius in this area and really, really well spoken. So, you know, kind of having that humility to go in and say, hi, you're way younger than I am, way smarter than I am, way more of an expert in this domain. Please take pity on me and explain it. <laughs> it's so much fun. And people do, people are very helpful by nature. Yeah. You yeah. ask something yeah. for advice or say, hey, can you spend 15 minutes with me mm-hmm. to have a coffee to about this topic? Like most people are. Yeah. Pretty happy to help. I went to an event the other day uh, where there was a talk from a cryptographer. Oh, nice. Like, kind of explaining the security of the internet. Because apparently the internet wasn't built to be secure. The internet was built to connect all these computers, and that's what scientists were super excited about at the time. No one was like, oh, we should put in some basic frameworks around safety. That's not what it was about at all. That's why I didn't help struggling with this. And it was super interesting and in my normal life I would never bump into this cryptographer from you know MI5. <laughs> but you can make these connections yep. and someone you know everyone has something to add to the conversation in cybersecurity because we all we're all touched by it. Like you know I have kids and we're trying to educate them about the internet. A CISO is worried about his 50,000 employees running around on, on their internet and Fantastic. So I think I'll move on to our final question for the day. As tech industry leaders who happen to be women and mothers, how would you like to see the industry change for future generation of women who choose to enter this industry? Can you go first? Oof. I mean, that's a tough one. But you kind of answered it already. Like, how will women choose to enter this industry? Like, personally speaking, I found it a little bit hard. Like I had decided I wanted to work in cybersecurity because I was already working in the cloud space and I'm like, this is a related industry that's growing, let's go. And a lot of people are like, oh, why do you want to do It's quite technical. <laughs> <laughs> like, a, little, a little bit, I'm not going to say condescending, but yeah. it's close. Yeah. And I was like, hang on, I've been doing this for 20 years. I know how the internet works. Mm. I'm not saying I'm going to code. But I want to work in this obscurity field. And yeah, a lot of people really kind of question that. So what I want to change is for people to just be much more open to that. And like in terms of resourcing, we're all hearing that this is like 4 million people that we need in cybersecurity in the coming years that we just don't have. So the answer would be, well, 50% of the world population is of women. That's like a huge amount of people that can help and, and fill that gap. Love it. Absolutely. Um, look, I think 
I've always worked in very male-dominated companies, male-dominated teams, male-dominated industries. And so I had to develop um, thick skin and, and, and a lot of defenses, actually. You know, so I got a lot of very indecent proposals from managers, colleagues, partners, customers over the years. And what I want to change is so that my daughter doesn't have any of those and that she's not the one that has to defend against it because it's for a woman to have to endure that and have to come to the boss afterwards and say, hey, you didn't stand up for me in this meeting, something which I did last year. That's humiliating. You know, and you would like to have someone else in the room to actually come and stand up for you on your behalf. But I don't think that the answer is necessarily women in X events. I think the answer is to say, okay, for all these events, we're going to make participation 20% less expensive for women so that we get more women on the leadership table. We get more women coming, being sent by their companies to these events. Because then once the events are 50% women, nobody would dare to do any of the stuff that they dared to do when we were fresh in the industry. And that's really what I want for the next generation is that they're not worrying about any of that stuff, that they're able to be naively, wonderfully free and be themselves, themselves in a way that I yeah. just but I can't. To be able to achieve that, we also need you know all the men in the industry to be allies, right? We can, yeah, we can all, of course, we're friends and we have lots of other female friends in cyber, actually. But we also need men to acknowledge that, hey, we do need to make a change. Yeah. And, and kind of welcome women into the space. It's not that technical, it's not that hard. And the space will be better for having the point of view of women in it as well. We all know that companies that have a you know, certain amount of female representation on boards are more profitable. Yeah. Having diversity in your boardroom does make you a, a company that's more resilient to upcoming changes and come up with more innovative solutions. If you have a meeting room full of very similar people, they and you're looking for a new solution, a new product, a new something, they will come up with one answer because they all have got the same background. If you have diverse people in terms of religion, culture, gender, background, you will come up with five different solutions and two of them might be absolutely incredible. So yeah, the change, I think the change is coming, so I don't want this to be all doom and gloom. The change is coming and it just has to kind of keep on going. And I personally, you mentioned events, so I personally love public speaking, so I'm always happy to do that. And I always call out public events that I go to, cyber events, that have male only panels. I literally will send the organizer an email and I will say, I love your event, I'd like to come. I'd even like to sponsor it because then, you know, when there's all the signs. Yeah. But I will literally say, I don't think my company's going to sponsor this event because there's no female representation on the panel. Mm. Can I help you find a female CISO that's happy to speak? There's one on Deutschback. I met her last week. She's happy to speak. She has a, she's a CISO with like 40 years of experience. Um, so we need to just kind of push that yeah. up a little bit and not take no for an answer. I agree. Fantastic. I think that's, those are some really great points that you guys have raised and, you know, here's looking to provide a future for everyone. Um, but folks, that's all the time we have for today. So I'd like to thank you uh, for joining us today and for sharing your perspectives with us. I think it's been a really fun chat. Um, so to the listeners, stay tuned for more podcasts and we will see you all next time.
Goodbye. Thanks. <laughs>